So we journeyed last week through Isaac's life in a single sermon, right? Chapter 26 was all about Isaac clumsily receiving the baton from Abraham. And in today's text, the baton is being passed again. Very quickly, right? But there's a dilemma. There are two sons. Usually, you know, it would go to the firstborn. But here we have these, these twins. Who's going to be the patriarch of the covenant that God has made with Abraham? Logically, you'd think, right? The firstborn, Isaac or uh, um, Esau, technically came out first, right? But Jacob was holding the heel of his brother. And we saw the Lord declare this oracle to Rebekah, saying, The older shall serve the younger. And so we have God's ordination back in chapter 25 that there's going to be a reversal of the order of things. Jacob would take the baton, not Esau. Esau would not inherit the covenant along with the birthright and the blessing. And you see this play on words with birthright and blessing. They're very close, almost the same Hebrew word. Jacob would take it all. And we must remember as we approach this passage this morning that God already chose Jacob. Regardless of who was born first or which parent loved who the, the most or who was better with a bow staff, God already chose the next patriarch. Sometimes we're, we're tempted to feel so bad for Esau when we read this passage, right? What a great injustice has been done. And there was a great injustice done to Esau. But we must remember that God already gave it away before Jacob ever thought about stealing it. But Jacob does steal it. That's how the story goes. And we'll see this tension this morning over the revealed will of God and our sinful behavior that's used to get there. This is the same lesson we've been learning, right, from Abraham and Isaac, that God has this will that will be accomplished and man simply cannot trust God to perform his will. And so they go out on their own. They strike out on their own to, to sin in order that they might get to God's will. And there's something else I want to show you. This, this, this passage here is sandwiched between two similar statements. At the end of chapter 26, we see in verse 34 that Esau was 40 years old when he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And at the end of chapter 27, how did it end? Uh, Rebekah sends Jacob off to Haran that he might not marry a Hittite woman because that, again, would be a miserable life for her. The Hittites were local, living in their region. They were not a part of God's covenant people. Abraham was adamant, if you remember a few chapters ago, that Isaac would not marry a Hittite woman because that would possibly taint the covenant. They worshiped a different God. The future promises of God would, would maybe spoil if that happened. And so he sent his servant all the way back to Nahor, to his family land, to find a woman for Isaac to marry. They found Rebekah. Now, a generation later, Esau, by age 40, has already married not one, but two Hittite women. What this shows us is that this family is a mess and morally vulnerable. They are a mess and they are morally vulnerable. Abraham never would have imagined that his firstborn grandson would do such a thing. 
or yet that his own son, Isaac, would consider it or allow it to happen. Their home was a wreck. They were divided from the start. Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac loved Esau. They had serious issues. Life was bitter for them. And if you look at this text, chapter 27 today, we got four characters. Rebekah and Isaac, Esau and Jacob. They are never in the same room together in this entire chapter. They are never in the same room together. Isaac talks to Esau. Rebekah talks to Jacob. Jacob talks to Isaac. Esau talks to Isaac. Rebekah talks again to Jacob. We don't see the parents communicate. You don't see the brothers communicate. In fact, I don't know if you caught it, Rebekah even called Esau Isaac's son instead of her own. And at the end of our chapter, what does Rebekah say? She says, I loathe my life. And so she sends Jacob off to Haran to find a wife. What we learn today is that we are not justified in sinful behavior for righteousness' sake. We are not justified in sinful behavior for righteousness' sake. God will have His will regardless of our help. Nevertheless, He continues to use wretches for His divine plans and purposes. So, I've got four points for us today, and the first one is Isaac's order. Isaac's order. If we look again at verses 1 through 4, we see Isaac is an old man by now. They didn't have readers back then, right? Or bifocals. He was pretty much blind. He couldn't see. Uh, He's relying strongly on his senses of smell and his senses of touch. He thinks he's near to death. And uh, we actually know from the text that he goes on to live another 20 years. But the blessing can't wait. Calvin uh, makes the observation here that Isaac is acting as if he's got one foot in the grave. He's dead before he's dead. He says, everyone, Calvin says, everyone, even in the full age of, or full vigor of age, carries with him a thousand deaths. In other words, many of us go through life just thinking, oh, today's going to be my last day. And this is uh, what's going on here with Isaac, and, and it could even be what I might argue a case of greed. Because it's interesting to note a couple things about Isaac that were passed down to Esau. First of all, Isaac can't wait until his deathbed to give the blessing away. How come? Because he wants to outdo God. God already said it belongs to Jacob. Esau's like, I don't know how much time I got left. I got to make sure it gets to Esau. Second, he's working hard to ignore the ordination of God completely. And third, the mode for performing the transaction would come through a meal, a home-cooked, freshly hunted game, food that Isaac loved. And this shows Isaac's appetite. He's not thinking with his head. He's thinking with his flesh. He's thinking with his stomach. He wants delicious food. He's become an old, greedy man. And it's no wonder that Esau had two foreign wives by age 40. I wonder where he learned to act like that. Regardless of our age, though, what might it look like for us to set aside God's will for our own, as we are tempted to do? You might have heard this week, uh, Saddleback Church 
one of the largest churches in the Southern Baptist Convention, ordained three female pastors. They have decided to abandon God's will for their own. For us at Main Street, it may be that we love traditions more than we love Scripture. Maybe we love our customs, our old songs, our old Wednesday night stuff, our old Sunday night stuff, our our Sunday school classes, things that we used to do. And these weren't necessarily bad things, right? But many times we choose our own comfort and what's easy versus what the Bible says and what a healthy church looks like, right? And I hope that we as a church in this replant will be willing to continue laying aside our preferences for the scriptures and for the gospel and for what God's word says. And before I sound too condemning, I'm really proud of you. I think that you're doing it really well so far, but I want you to keep at it. Keep going. I know we've made a lot of hard decisions. The last year and a half has been crazy, but we're on a good track, and I'm really proud of you. But all of us, no matter how old we are, need to ask ourselves, who do we love more? Do we love Christ, or do we love ourselves? I I love old hymns, obscure ones that nobody knows, and certainly are probably uh, terrible melodies and can't sing, but John Newton wrote one uh, that I found this week, and I've got just one verse on it. Um, he said, some st- speaking of Jesus, some style him the pearl of great price and say he's the fountain of joys, yet feed upon folly and vice and cling to the world and its toys. Like Judas, the Savior, they kiss, and while they salute him, betray. Ah, what, pro- what will professions like this avail in that terrible day? It's a wonderful hymn um, all about who Jesus truly is to us. Is he lovely or not? Uh, Unfortunately, for Isaac, he chose the toys of the world. But he was not the only one with secret motives. We've got Isaac's order. Secondly, Rebecca's scheme. Rebecca's scheme. In verse 5, we see Rebecca was listening the whole time. She heard everything that Isaac ordered Esau to do, to go and get the food and bring it back so that he would get the blessing. But Rebecca knows, she knows, she remembers, God said Jacob would receive the baton. He would be the recipient. But instead of letting the Lord take care of it, because he's certainly capable on his own to make Jacob the recipient however he wanted to do that, she feels she has to get involved. She thinks God needs her help, as we've seen all these patriarchs do. But she is wrongfully motivated. She loves Jacob more than Esau. She's always shown a preference to him. Not only is she showing partiality, she's being manipulative, deceptive, keeping things from her husband. She is sinning against God in order to gain the promises. Marcus Dodd says it this way. They gained nothing. By doing this. And they lost a great deal. By their wicked interference. They gained nothing. For God had promised that the birthright would be Jacob's. And would have given it to him in some way. Redounding to his credit and not to his shame. And they had lost a great deal. The mother lost her son. Jacob had to flee for his life. And for all we know, Rebecca never saw him again. The scheme was that. He would dress up, right, as Esau and go in and get the blessing. And Jacob tries to question her for a minute. He, he says, how's this going to work? Dad's going to know. I'm not hairy. 
like Esau. I don't smell like Esau. What if he finds me out? And we actually get cursed instead of blessed. And notice, Jacob's concern is not that they're blaspheming God, but that they might not get what they want. Rebecca is so deep in this scheme, she says, I'll take full responsibility. Any cursings on you, let them be on me. Obey my voice. So instead of venison, Isaac's going to be eating some goat tonight, prepared by his wife. It's an ethical dilemma that we've all thought about. Can I sin if it's for a good cause? Can I give a few white lies at work as long as I'm not really getting caught and nobody's getting hurt and I'm getting all my work done? You know, my wife just really isn't fulfilling my needs. I'm justified to look at these things instead. You know, that, that person really needs to be corrected. Maybe if, if I publicly shame them, they'll learn their place. They need to be corrected. Family, there is no justifiable sin. There is no justifiable sin. If you're having this argument going on in your head, should I do this thing or not? You have made your own self the lawyer of your soul rather than the Holy Spirit, who is the lawyer of our souls, who convicts us according to right and wrong. There's a, a story of a man in the 1800s who uh, had a family and uh, jobs were scarce and he worked at a, uh, like a general store, marketplace kind of thing. And his boss was really greedy and he would not set prices on any of their merchandise, but rather he would base the prices on the ignorance of the people who came in to shop. Right? So if they didn't know what they were buying, uh, his boss would tell him to up the price as high as you can get it. Right? To be a good salesman. So they can get their top dollar. Well, the man began to feel bad about this. He was pretty good at it, but he felt like this might be sinful. So he went and talked to his pastor. And uh, this is Ichabod Spencer. I love these stories. But um, this is what the pastor said. It is not God's will for you to sin that you should provide for your family. It's not God's will for you to sin that you should provide for your family. So here's what he said. Go talk to your boss and tell him that you're not going to sin anymore because you worship God. So he's like, well, I'm going to get fired if I do that. You know? And he has to kind of muster up the strength. It takes him a couple weeks. But finally, uh, he says, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to outwit people to get our, our highest dollar. And he says, well, if you're not going to do that, you're not going to have a job. He was fired. The boss man turned out bankrupt losing everything he had and the entire store itself after he quit. The man found a job where his ethics were no longer in question and God provided all his needs. At the end of the day, for most of us, justifying our sin isn't something we do because we love God. You know why we justify our sin? It's because we love ourselves and we love our sins. It's because Romans 6 says that we're enslaved to our flesh. He says, do you not know, Romans 6, 16, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. Sin 
will never lead to righteousness. Thankfully for us, this passage also teaches that righteousness can be found outside of ourselves through the covering of another. Isaac's orders, Rebekah's scheme, Jacob's deceit. We see verse 18. Isaac goes in to his father. And he says, my father, he says, here am I. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord, your God, granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because the hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. Isaac is going to win an Emmy here today, or a Golden Globe or something. I don't know what the awards are. But he's going to win one of those things for being the best actor, right? He goes in with the animal skins and Esau's clothing. He looks like him, feels like him, smells like him. Just can't change his voice, right? And Isaac even questions him for a minute. He says, how did you prepare this feast so fast, Jacob? Or Esau, he thinks is Esau. And here's Jacob's worst lie of all. He says, Yahweh blessed me, your God. Blasphemy, right? Blasphemy. Now that you've drawn the Lord into this. Isaac wants to feel him and smell him. He has those doubts, right? He's relying on his nose, his hands. He says, well, you feel like Esau. Let me eat the soup. Let me eat the bread, the whatever it is, you know. So he eats the, the delicious meal, the goat. Gives him some wine to drink. And he says, kiss me. Kiss me. And like Judas, the deceiver goes in to kiss his father. To receive his reward. And thus the blessing, the birthright, the baton is passed to Jacob. The details of the blessing are pretty standard. Material abundance, national triumph, patriarchal authority, and the promise that started it all with Abraham. Cursed be anybody who curses you. Blessed be anyone who blesses you. And again, let me remind you, God already said Jacob is going to be the patriarch. But here Jacob is stealing it from his brother, just like he did with the birthright some time ago. Esau is out in the field, hunting the game, obedient son, preparing the meal, getting ready to honor his father, receive the blessing. And Jacob is heaping up a mountain of lies on his reputation. The only way Jacob can fathom to receive this blessing is to literally become his brother. Is to take on the obedient personhood of who Esau is. We, like Jacob, have lied, cheated, stolen, and blasphemed God. And if we look deeper beyond the animal skins and the smelly garments... We see a picture of the gospel right here in Genesis chapter 27. But our hope is not in animal skins. Our hope is in the righteousness and the obedience of another. Our hope is in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ that cover our disobedience. 
None of us can approach God in death the way that we are. Unholy, unclean, deserving of hell, wrath, and separation from the kingdom of God forever. We need a covering, and Jesus Christ is the only worthy covering. We don't just place Him on our hands and our chest and our neck. We, we place Him on our heart, that our heart might be broken and we might be born again through this righteousness transacted, traded with our sin. Friends, if you died today, are you confident in the righteousness of Jesus Christ to cover you before the judgment seat of God? If you were to go in and approach our Father God today, would He accept you or turn you away? Some say they believe on the righteousness of Jesus, but are truly relying on their good works. We say, well, I've lived a pretty good life, better than others. At least 90% of me is good. And Jesus will make up the 10% that ain't. Right? If that's you, you're closer to hell than you think. All of you needs all of Christ. You contribute nothing to salvation. Absolutely nothing. You are undeserving of every gift of God. Especially the grace that washes us and changes us and makes us new. We don't deserve that. This is what solus Christus means. That is only Christ, only His blood, only His sacrifice, only His cross. Nothing else can wash away our sin. Nothing of our own good works get us to heaven. Nothing makes us worthy to be washed or to be given the spotless robes of Jesus. He was raised to life on the third day, and you can be too. If only you will repent and believe on Jesus today. Repent of any self-righteousness you feel. Repent of any good deeds that you are claiming before the throne. Throw it in the garbage and let Christ be Lord of your life. You are not obedient, Esau. You are greedy, Jacob. And you need to get saved. Last point. Esau's rage. Esau's rage. Look at verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. And he prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn son Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. And as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly bitter, uh, great and bitter cry. And said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. So Jacob was cutting it close, right? He gave his dad the goat, got the blessing, and got out. And just as he finished, Esau came in. Having sported the game, killed whatever animal he found, right? Brought it, his meal in hand, knowing nothing about what just happened. And those terrifying words, who are you? Start a chain of horror in the revelation of what just took place between the two of them. Isaac trembles violently. Esau weeps bitterly. 
begging for his own blessing. But not only has it already been done, God's already said it's Jacob's. Before Isaac ever gave it away, God said it was Jacob's. And there's no changing the mind of God. The only blessing Esau would get is that he would not receive any of the material abundance Isaac was, or Jacob was promised. He would live in fear of his life by the sword. He would grow restless under the yoke of Jacob, only to one day break it off of his neck. And then Esau's sorrows turn to rage, right? He gets angry. He makes it his new life's desire to kill his brother, to literally raise Cain as Cain killed Abel. Rebecca hears the news. She sends Jacob off to Haran with Uncle Laban, perhaps to find a wife there. And how I started, remember? She says, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. When in truth, do you know why Rebecca loathed her life? She loathed her life because of unrepentant sin that had run rampant in her family. You may feel the same today. It's not too late to repent and set your house in order. For husbands to become the man God has made you to be. For wives, for you to love and honor, submit to your husbands as God has called you to do. For children, to obey your father and your mother. and Submit to them as you do to the Lord. Get your house in order. Don't settle for loathing your life until you die. Repent. Repent and look to Christ. So we need to set aside our own will for God's will, right? We need to stop justifying our sins. And we need to cast all our good works on Christ as our only hope at obtaining righteousness. Then there's one more thing, if I've got a few minutes, that we need to apply if we're going to preach the whole counsel of God here this morning. Don't you want to preach the whole counsel of God? I don't know how I cannot bring this up. Malachi brought it up. Paul brought it up. Malachi was given the harsh words to declare to Israel in his day. Malachi chapter 1. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of, the hosts, of hosts says... They may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. What is the Lord saying here in in Malachi? Uh, Malachi is a prophet to Israel. Jacob becomes the nation of Israel. Uh, Esau becomes the nation of Edom. And this is a time where Israel is being judged, disciplined, uh, because of their sin and rebellion. And the Lord says, I love you. And they're like, no, you don't. Look at our lives. You love Edom. You love them. They're the ones doing good right now. And the Lord says, have you forgotten? Genesis 27. That I loved Jacob and I gave the promise to you and not to Esau. And, and the, the word love and hate means accept or reject, right? It's not that God just was abhorring Esau. And he goes on to take care of Esau. In the, in the land of Edom. But rather was that he rejected Esau. He was not the one who would bear the covenant. He, he was not the recipient of the baton. 
It was supposed to be Jacob. And if you think that's pretty cool, just wait till the Apostle Paul gets his hand on this, right? Romans chapter 9. The Apostle Paul says, Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that Moses and Malachi and all the other prophets preached election before I ever got here. Before I ever became an apostle. Genesis 27, he says, is a proof text of God's sovereignty in salvation. Election is not a doctrine of Paul. Election is a doctrine of God. Baptists have been rejecting the doctrine of election for far too long. I was just reading Bodie Bauckham's story, and uh, I, I probably shouldn't even mention this, but he, uh, it's not in my notes, but he uh, <clears throat> was moving up in the SBC. Paige Patterson said, you're going to be the next Southern Baptist president. And uh, then it turned out he was a Calvinist. And he lost all his traction in the SBC because he believed in the sovereignty of God and salvation. Family, it's time for us to get back to God's word. What does the Bible say? Did Paul stop on the Damascus road and ask Jesus into his heart? Or were the scales lifted from his eyes? He was made blind. Did Gomer... Choose to be Hosea's wife? Or did Hosea say, you, I purchase you, I redeem you, you're mine? Did Abraham look at the moon, worshiping the moon, and then look back to God and say, I don't know, I'll choose one or the other? Or did God reveal himself in an undeniable, irresistible way that said, you are mine, I'm your God now? Did Lot run for safety out of Sodom? Or did the angels forcibly remove him by his right arm? Did Lydia choose God? Or did God open Lydia's heart to receive the truth? Did Pharaoh continue slave driving the Hebrews out of spite? Or because God hardened his heart? The Bible says God saves who he saves God has mercy on whom he has mercy. God has compassion on whom he has compassion. That's the doctrine of election. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of it. Love God's word. Study this. Dig deeper. Read books. Don't be afraid of this. Think with me for a moment. Who do you want to be in control of salvation? The all-wise All-knowing, all-good, gracious, merciful, righteous, holy, benevolent, just God of all creation, time, and space? Or us? I don't want to be in control. If, If you want to be in control of your own salvation, you may not have a problem with the Bible's teaching. 
you may have a sin problem that needs to be corrected. We would be a lot more grateful for our salvation if we actually believed what God's Word says. God saved us, not reliant on our obedience or our disobedience. God chose Jacob, not reliant on his obedience or disobedience. Before he was even born, knowing good or evil, he chose him. God did not choose Esau, right? Not based on his disobedience or obedience. So what do we say? What do we say? We say with the saints of Ephesus, we are predestined for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. We rejoice that God has done this. We see our undeservedness. We see our sin, corruption, depravity, and we rejoice in the riches of his glorious grace lavished upon us. We can never be worthy of such a great salvation. That's what we do. We praise God. So what then, Paul says, is God unjust by no means? He says in 1 Timothy 2, He desires all men to be saved. In fact, the Apostle Paul believed that the Jews had a veil put over their eyes by God himself and therefore could not believe. But he still says in Romans 9, I would trade my own salvation if they would be saved. I would cut myself off from God and be accursed forever in the flames of hell if only my brothers would know God and be saved. Hear the gospel and believe. And so that's why he says in Romans 9, they must hear. They must believe. Faith comes through hearing. We will preach the good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who go and present the gospel. We preach knowing that the veil can be removed. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord for adoption, for predestination. Praise the Lord for the preaching of the gospel. Let the church say together, Thy will be done. And let's praise God for the riches of His grace poured out for sinners. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.